Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who have experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week we are talking about sex workers and sexual violence. My name is Emily Mitchell and I am the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center. With me today I have Nicole Parker. Nicole uses she her pronouns and is the Transaction Florida Project Coordinator, assisting with Equality Florida's statewide transgender inclusion initiative. She also works currently for One Pulse Foundation as the Stakeholder and Community Relations Manager. Nicole has sat on various nonprofit boards within the community, including the LGBT Plus Center Board for Directors, the Orlando United Assistance Center Advisory Board, Trans Action Advisory Council, Spectrum Health Board of Directors, and Peer Support Space Board of Directors. So, Nicole, thank you so, so much for being here today. Thank you, Emily, for having me. (laughs) And I also have returning Kevin Fox. Kevin uses he, him pronouns. He is a registered mental health counselor intern with the state of Florida. Kevin worked as a high school teacher while receiving his Master's of Arts in Clinical Mental Health Counseling from Rollins College. He has worked with adolescents with substance use issues, Equality Florida for LGBTQ plus rights, and in the UF Health Cancer Center at Orlando Health Counseling and performing therapy with cancer patients and their families. His passion when working with clients is to help them increase their resilience and satisfaction with their everyday lives. He seeks to help clients increase their meaning from life and live more authentically and honestly. So, Kevin, thank you for joining us again. Yes, I'm glad to be back. Awesome. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you both. And as a very brief introduction, on this podcast, we discuss sexual violence and various populations that are at risk or are vulnerable to sexual assaults. And globally, sex workers have a... 45 to 75% chance of experiencing sexual violence at some point in their careers. So what we are looking to explore in this episode is consent, modern sex work, transgender sex workers, and how sex workers who are sexually assaulted can get help. So with that in mind, when we hear the word sex work, I think there is a certain connotation that comes with it, but that connotation isn't exactly correct. So can either of you talk a bit about what sex work actually is 
and how that may be different than what an average American thinks of sex work. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, I think first and foremost, when talking about sex work, I love to put the word survival in front of it. Um, because there's two different ways to look at sex work. So you have individuals who fall into that um, inevitably not wanting to, but I always make the statement that regardless of if you're making money or not, your stomach still gets hungry, you still need to eat. So when it comes to situations like that, I would consider that survival sex work, which is what I had to do. In the beginning of my transition, I left my house and I thought $3,000 was going to take me around the world and it really did not. And very quickly I realized that I needed to do something to eat. So mine was more considered um, survival. However, um, there are individuals who choose to do sex work. There are individuals who love doing that and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I think it's being able to have a full rounded conversation about both of them. You have some individuals who don't want to and have experienced trauma from it. And then you have some individuals that do. And sex work manifests itself in different ways. That could be um, prostitution. That could be stripping. That could be, depending on how you look at it and what you do, only fans. I mean, there's so many things, porn, there's so many things that you can do. And depending on what your classification of sex work is, it could definitely fall into that. Yeah, I think when I hear sex work, especially in 2020, I think of of it in a consensual way, like I'm choosing to do this, as opposed to sex trafficking, which I know we'll get into later, which is the coercion, the, the forcing, um, and for survival. You know, I think now there's porn stars, you know what I mean? Like you have celebrities, like there's people who it's like, oh my God, it's, and they enjoy that and that's their thing and that, yeah. and it's positive. Um, but just as much as there's the positive, there's twice as much negative, I think, uh, when it comes to sex work and survival sex work. So, um, yeah, I mean, just that just being the starting off point of this whole podcast, I think is so important to define. Um, and then of course there's a lot of, I think, negative opinion about what sex work is and the taboo of prostitution and the taboo of porn and the taboo of being a stripper. And it's, all part of the patriarchy which we seek to topple <laughs> one podcast at a time <laughs> it's so true there's so much stigma behind it and i mean it's the oldest profession in the book like i, I just i don't I, I get it everybody has their own views everybody has their own way of looking at life but i never looked at anybody maybe because i did it but i never looked at anybody less than because of what they had to do i think people um, humans are resilient and they're going to find out and do whatever they can to stay alive. So, yeah, thank you so much for both of your answers. And I think what's really interesting is maybe the difference between prostitution, the way we look at prostitution and the way that we look at porn. I think that there's definitely stigma around porn, but do you all think that there's more stigma around prostitution and why do you think that there's a difference? I definitely think it's I think porn's more acceptable. I think porn's more acceptable, especially for men, right? Like, oh, boys will be boys. A teenager looking at, you know, hiding a stack of Playboys under his bed, right? Is the stereotype, or like looking at such and such online to explore what sex is as like a young teenager. I think that's easier to digest because it's like, uh, in a sense of quote unquote, everyone does it. Like, as much as there's a taboo, it's at least I feel there's a mutual understanding that like everyone has at least looked at some form of porn in their life. Um, and then when it comes to prostitution, it's like, it's more of a direct action, I guess, you know, you're taking part in a 
specific transaction where sex is actually had, not this kind of just at a distance from a computer from a magazine. So I think it's easier for people to digest, I guess. I agree. I think um, I think what's interesting is the staged part about it, the um, it's legal part about it. I think that's why people look at it as something different. And then all of a sudden when you have a price tag on you and it's not legal and you're having to use these other ways, people kind of look at prostitution as like, oh, you know, I would never, I would never. But what's very interesting is, and we've seen it forever. This isn't anything new, but obviously the music um, has shifted even when I was younger to shifting now to, you know, just completely talking about, I'm going to sleep with this person for this. I'm going to sleep this person with that um, to achieve this, you know? And I think it's just a, it's just a part of the times in the sense of uh, culture, you know, and, and Hollywood and all of that, and that like over-sexualization and stuff like that. But I think people have this skewed view of it. I think that you start to see your favorite Instagram star on OnlyFans and you think this is only what sex work is. They're, oh, I'm in my house, I'm safe, not realizing that there's individuals that put their life on the line every day to go on the streets just to make some money to eat and put a house over their head. So it it is, it's a broad and very difficult conversation. That makes a lot of sense. And, and you touched up a little bit of what I'm going to be talking about next, uh, which is the decriminalization of it. So without getting too into the nitty gritty politics of this issue, sex work in America is currently viewed pretty negatively compared to how other countries view it. And this is in part due to how other countries treat sex work legally. So I see terms like decriminalized sex work. So can you touch on what that term means and what it could mean for sex workers? I, I personally think decriminalization is so important because, I mean, think about it. Think about you needing to eat, having no way to make any money. So I'm going to put this into context very quickly. So let's say for someone who's trans. Now, for me, I always say this. I'm the first to acknowledge my privilege. This whole thing in our community about passing and being passable and all that stuff. I hate that word, but that is something real where if you don't know what passable means, that's where the trans individual passes as the gender that they're presenting as. So I can walk through a mall or something and nobody know. But I use my privilege to advocate for those who can. I have so many friends who may not fit into that passable realm and have gone on job interviews and been denied the minute they walked in or have been denied when it was time to give documents, um, looking at their ID and things weren't changed. So if you can imagine how many times trans folks go and try to get jobs and don't get them, but then that doesn't mean that they're not hungry. That doesn't mean that they have, they're going to stop, you know, doing whatever they need to do to live. So I think it kind of just falls into that space of how can you criminalize somebody for doing something just to stay alive? You know, I just, I can't really grasp that. And I see that there's other subject matters that have very, very low penalties or no repercussion. And I'm just like, can we shift the system a bit? Can we kind of look at these things and realize that if you interview a hundred sex workers, you're going to realize that majority of them just want to eat. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing, like the, you're criminalizing someone's basic need for survival at that point. Uh, yeah. I don't think when it comes to survival sex work, it's the first choice. You know what I mean? Uh, it was the only choice. And I think that was especially true. It's definitely true now, especially looking at like the eighties, nineties when, you know, things were even 
more taboo than there. Like at least we can have these conversations today. Um, yeah. Whereas in the eighties, nineties, it didn't. It didn't matter. It was you're making that choice, and you're that person walking the streets at night, and their need for survival, their basic like human dignity, wasn't being respected. And instead, it was like, oh, that's an easy person to arrest. Like it's an easy check mark on the uh, what I did today as you know an officer doing my rounds. It's and there are more important things happening. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think too, like the one example we have in the US that never, it's funny because of course prostitution and brothels used to be legal everywhere in the US and everywhere, you know, that was what it was. Um, and I was doing a bit of research before this on Nevada, which is currently the only state in the US that still has legal brothels and prostitution. Um, and a bunch of opponents of that say like, oh, we're looked at the last state that allows it. And in my mind, I'm like, but you're also pioneers for the future where we can make this safer. Um, if you look at the brothels and the legal prostitution in Nevada, they're checked for HIV and syphilis once a month. They're tested for STIs once a week. It's very protected. You know, you're not out on your own putting yourself at risk of these people going to their hotel room or their home. Um, you're in a safe place, you're protected, and you can make that choice in the in the way that sex work is positive to make money and to um, do that in a safe way. So it's, it's funny. And I actually, like, doing my research, too, I thought it was still legal in Las Vegas. Las Vegas illegalized it. There's still escort services, which are not for sex, but, you know, uh, and then, but a lot of the surrounding counties in Nevada still have, I think there's 19 operating brothels in Nevada currently. I didn't know that. And and you brought up a good point about the safety of it. And that's kind of the meat of this conversation is about um, the risk that sex workers have to experiencing sexual violence. So Kevin, I have this question about as the certified rape crisis center, we help people who have been sexually assaulted every day. And I do think it is important to state that sex workers can be sexually assaulted. So now as an advocate who works on cases and with the justice system, how have you seen sex workers struggle after sexual assault? And if you haven't worked with a sex worker directly, um, can you maybe explain what barriers to care or justice might be for them that are different than a victim who is not a sex worker? Yeah, um, I think I've had three clients that I've met this past year who experienced their sexual assault while doing sex work, um, and there's no validation for them. Um, the fear is that they're going to go to police and be like, well, this is what you were doing, so you should expect that this is, it's just a, a working risk. You know what I mean? Like, this is just what's going to happen, um, which is makes the trauma twice as bad for that survivor in that moment because now they're saying you deserved it you know if you if you weren't putting yourself in this position this wouldn't have happened um whereas when you have safe sex work you can say like these are my terms this is what i do you know if you don't want me you can pick somebody else but this is what i do this is what i'm willing to consent to this is what this these are the sexual acts we can engage in um and if that's violated, then the person is asked to leave and there's security and there's someone there who can remove the person violating uh, that sex worker. 
but here with the clients that I've seen where it's survival sex work, they have no one to turn to because if they go to the police, the police are going to say, why were you, or the fear is that the police, you know, hopefully we have office and, and there are officers who have validated and said, like, we're not charging them for the sex work, whatever, what we're focusing on is the assault for those officers. I'm grateful, but that's not always the case. And the fear and the stigma is I'm going to go and I'm going to be the one getting arrested because of what I had to do to feed myself or pay for a hotel room so I could lay my head down to sleep tonight. Um, and there's so much judgment and shame that that accompanies that. So, yeah, I think there's twice as many hoops to jump through healing from that trauma, um, going to the police, feeling like you there are people backing you up. Um, and so I think just on that alone, it's it's so scary. And for those clients and for those people who are in that situation, the sexual assault they experienced is still valid regardless of what was happening. You know, it doesn't make it any less of a sexual assault just because you agreed to pay for a certain sexual transaction and someone went too far and violated that. Uh, and I think a lot of people have trouble understanding that in the sense of victim blaming. You know, if you weren't wearing that, if you weren't doing that, if you weren't at that club at that time, or if you weren't so drunk, it's all it's all the same to me as far as that victim blaming. So, and it's tough. Yeah. So that's where the system needs to step up and be better for these people uh, that are sex workers. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and what you said about how it's a worker risk really resonated with me because um, when I do my trainings on sexual harassment, for example, we show a video of a woman who um, is a bartender. And she said, oh, I know that you know, being harassed as a bartender just comes with the job. And I like to say no job in their description says must endure sexual harassment. And I think that that's really important to highlight as a sex worker too. No job says must endure sexual assault. Um, And I can see why it would go into that victim blaming mentality. Um, So I really appreciate you sharing your, um, your thoughts on that. Nicole, I have a question. Speaking of my trainings, <laughs> in my sexual assault trainings, we talk a lot about myths versus facts and also mm-hmm. uh, misconceptions. And I think a struggle in the sex worker community as an outsider looking in um, is this myth of no one wants to do it when some people choose that work. But yet, on the other hand, there truly are those who are forced into sex trafficking or doing sex work just to survive, as you all have been mentioning. Um, so can you talk a little bit about this dichotomy with sex work? Yeah, so it, it's such a broad topic that, I mean, you can kind of go really any way with it. But when you really look at it, if you're looking at, you know, sex work as a whole, let's take the side of individuals who want to. So you have um, you have people who, yeah, may um, be escorts, maybe porn stars, do OnlyFans, do anything, you know, webcam or anything like that. And that's the job that they choose to do. That's the job that they want to do. They understand the circumstances. They understand the repercussions that kind of come with that. And they are completely fine and willing to do that. And me, myself, I know many individuals who do and never have any um, inkling of wanting to leave, um, don't look at look at it as traumatic or anything other than just a job and they enjoy it and i think as a human you are allowed to enjoy what you want to do and you're allowed to do what you want to do as long as it's not harming others um 
so I think what happens is people like to blend these conversations together. So then let's jump over to the side of someone who was forced in, someone who had no choice but to do it. These are the individuals that you're going to find that have trauma behind it. These are the individuals that are diagnosed with PTSD or anything in that realm. These are the individuals that are gonna have very triggering moments, whether that's going to a hotel. I can give a real life example about that. Um, I stopped sex work in 2015. I was in it for three years. And in 2017, I, had, I, I got into a four year relationship after that. So luckily I had some type of support. Um, but in 2017, I had a conference to go to in Seattle. And this was the first time that I would be by myself for three days in the hotel room. And it was extremely, extremely triggering for me because I didn't have anybody with me. The way that the bed was made, the way that the key card sound, all of that triggered me. And for me, someone who was diagnosed PTSD from childhood trauma plus my sex work, I'm in the lane of I found it traumatizing. I'm in the lane of I would stop that life five years ago and I'm still in counseling for it. Now, my experience is not the same as everybody else. You, I could call up a friend who's like, I never had a traumatic experience in my life and I genuinely enjoy doing this. So I think you can't look at it in one and the same. I think you have to look at it um, very much circumstantial. You know, what are the circumstances around it? Who is the individual that's talking to you? And I think that's kind of how you differentiate it. And I get it in society, it's easy to judge, but you can judge about anything. People judge you on the way that you look, the way that you, what car you drive, what job you do, what you eat, what you don't eat. This is just another thing that people can judge you on. But I think if anybody's listening and kind of has a skewed view of it, I think it's more just an understanding of what humans go through and sometimes what people have to do to survive. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that and for sharing your real life example and your story as well. Um, I can definitely see how things can be triggering, especially if you're forced into it. Um, and, and I think us kind of normaling the conversation is really, really important. So I'm glad that we have this space. I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, sex work as it relates to the trans community and their history with sex work. Um, this kind of relates back to doing sex work sex works to survive. TV shows like Pose and even the local uh, news show that some in the trans community end up doing sex work as a means to an end. And the 2015 National Transgender Discrimination Survey found that 12.8% of participants in the survey had participated in sex work. So the survey also found that family um, rejection more than doubled the likelihood that someone would participate in sex work and that 48.1% of those who had done sex work also reported experiencing homelessness due to bias. So there are obviously a lot of intersections at play here, but can you explain why the trans community and sex work has become more intertwined? Yeah, I think, um, so trans has always been taboo. When I look at the acronym LGBTQ, I always say the T is silent. Trans people are always the first to fight for everybody, but the last to be fought for. And I think it's always been that way. Pose is a phenomenal resource in the sense of from age 15 to when I transitioned 19, um, I was obsessed with ballroom culture. So everything that that is based off of is very real and has been happening for 40, 50 years. These balls still happen in New York City to this day. And what the ball culture really allowed me to see is being uplifted for who you are and what you bring to the table. 
And that was the beautiful thing of it. And I love that this generation had posed to look at because the episode where um, Blanca, one of the trans women goes into the gay bar and the gay man is like, you can't be in here. You're a freak of nature. I don't think people realize that. People think that it's the LGBTQ community as a whole, but they don't realize that there's a lot of um, L, G, and B who look at us like the freaks of the community. We've gone too far. We do too much and we ask too much. And that's a real thing. And also it's, so think about transitions have changed. Back in the day, you transitioned to look as passable as you could, because if you didn't pass, you were going to get beat up, killed, or something of that nature. So these individuals that were going to get jobs and things like that, it wasn't as easy back then. Name changes weren't a thing, all that stuff. So then no matter what you look like, if you go and your identification says one thing and your employer finds out, there wasn't non-discrimination policies back then. There was a lot of factors that, that kind of came into why trans folks are kind of the leading ones that are in sex work. And as time has gone on, I think it's something that is kind of passed down. And I'll be honest with you, I had um, an individual who's significantly older than me, but helped me to transition and let me know, the only way you're gonna have enough money to transition is doing sex work. If you work a job, it's gonna take you 30 years to do it. And when you're young, you're impressionable. So I'm like, oh, okay, you know, I think this is, I think this is how it is, and this is and that, not realizing all the things that would come to me. So I think it's a mix of disparities and being, a mar being the marginalized within the marginalized. So if you consider LGBTQ people marginalized, imagine being a trans black individual, you know what I mean? So you are just on the lowest part of the totem pole. So I think there's a factor of that and then a factor of it kind of being passed down generation to generation, basically saying this is how we survive. Many other factors, of course, but those are kind of two or three that I can kind of thread through. But um, a lot of things kind of go into that, absolutely. Yeah, I, well, you brought up every best point. I can't, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I know more about it than you, Nicole, because I recognize, you know, white, cisgender, gay, but um, I, I do want to echo what you said about how there's so much attention on the, like, LGB and not the T, um, and coming from the place of a white, cisgender, gay male, it's very true where there's so much at a baseline where toxic masculinity and sexism still seep into the gay community. There's a lot of fear of just being feminine. Uh, there's gay men who have like a phobia of, of drag queens who are still cisgender people, but just to be so daring to be feminine and comfortable with femininity is uh, intimidating somehow mm -hmm. um, <laughs> because of the systems. And I think that we do see that where a lot of people are like, oh, we got the right to marriage. Like most of the fight is over. And that was and still is a huge accomplishment. But even the more recent victory of the Supreme Court saying you can't discriminate based on gender identity and appearance was a huge win, I think, especially for the trans community as people are transitioning, as uh, they're expressing their gender and their identity in new ways that people need to fight to be more accepting of. Um, I think that still is a big hurdle in our community. Um, and if we can't get it right in our own community, how can we expect the straight people and the allies out there to, if we're fighting with each other, how, how are we supposed to get anybody else to back us? You know, um, And so I think that there is 
that work that needs to be done in recognizing that the trans brothers and sisters in the LGBTQ plus community are just as important as the rest of us and their needs right now are higher than ours. Uh, it's easy. It's easier now than ever um, to be accepted as a white cisgender gay or lesbian person. You know, we have visibility. You can turn on Ellen, you can turn on uh, Will and Grace, the new or old version. You know what I mean? Like, we've gotten this representation and it's still it's still it's still always shocking or it's still like uh tokenized to have the trans person and it just needs to get to that place where that's normal now and it's not like a shocking storyline or it's not a plot twist you know it's just this person's trans okay cool let's get to the plot of the show <laughs> and like move on um, and that's where i think pose is important legendary which is uh takes actual ballroom culture and uh, houses and has them compete is really great. And then, you know, for, as far as resourcing that anyone listening can look at, my favorite is always still going to be Paris is Burning, like the real stories of people being interviewed in the 80s. And, I mean, even by the end of that movie, it's like, oh, by the time this came out, half the cast had been murdered or killed. And it's like, that's the reality of mm-hmm. what this what this is. Um, so for anyone listening who hasn't seen those, I think that's a great place to start and get some quick and easy education on trans community in the eighties. And then now, cause you know, pose is based in the eighties and nineties, but it very much reflects today's issues. Thank you so much. I, I loved that really resonated me when you said the T is silent. Um, and it made me think of just privilege in general. And I think when we think of privilege, we do think of white cisgender straight people, but I, I think privilege is even within that and, and saying that you're marginalized within the marginalized um, kind of reflects that. And and even when you were mentioning how, um, you know, the, the term passing, those who pass, they have a privilege that come with that, too. And so that's just for, further complicating it. And um, also, Kevin, you mentioning, you know, the fear of the feminine. Um, that's really, you know, kind of what all of this is about almost seeing that like femininity is seen as lesser than masculinity and, and mm-hmm. how all of these different things about, you know, feminism um, and homophobia and, and all those things are kind of related back to this fear, this idea that the feminine is, is lesser than the masculine. So I wanted to acknowledge that too. I just had a follow-up question for those um, who are listening and actually I'm not very familiar with this either. Can you explain exactly what ballroom culture is? Yeah, so ballroom culture was basically LGBTQ individuals who didn't feel that they could have um, that outlet, that creative outlet, were able to um, rent spaces, and they would rent these spaces from like four o'clock in the morning to like nine or ten in the morning, and um, and this was done on purpose so that the sex workers could finish their job and then come out. So then they were able to come out, and it basically was a competition, if you will. So if you watch Paris is Burning, um, a lot of the categories are like executive realness and things like that. What they were doing is mimicking real world. So if they couldn't go and they always bring, because back then Merrill Lynch was a big thing, they always bring that into um, the documentary basically saying, so someone who is walking executive realness is going to walk down the runway. If it's a guy, he'll be um, in a suit and a a briefcase and everything. And basically the goal is to how well did you bring that effect? 
So if you, there's different categories, it goes from uh, realness, which is, which is the trans individuals, male or female, masculine or feminine, that will walk down the runway and the judges are going to judge if you look like a real girl or boy. Um, there's so many categories in there and that was, there's Vogue, there's um, Sex Siren, which is the individuals who kind of get their body done and have those incredible bodies. They can show that off. Basically what it was is creating a safe outlet for LGBTQ individuals, particularly individuals of color, to come in, um, in Harlem, you know, where it was so difficult to live at that time and really be able to have that space of um, com communion, you know, and just have that safe space together. So it's basically just an all in fun competition. And then they would put uh, prices and um, prizes, excuse me, on those competitions. So if you won the trophy, you could leave back then with 25 or $50. Nowadays, sometimes they have big, um, they have big balls where they're giving away $10,000 sometimes. So it has truly evolved, but it really did begin as a safe space for LGBTQ individuals of color to come and express their creativity. Very cool. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I wanted to kind of just highlight that. So thank you so much. Um, speaking of um, trans people of color and also just furthering like the different demographics and intersectionality, I'm actually about to throw out a lot of percentages, <laughs> but they're very important to look at. So bear with me here. So the same uh, National Transgender Discrimination Survey that I mentioned before also found that trans feminine respondents were twice as likely to participate in the sex trade compared to trans masculine respondents. So people of color were also four times as likely to engage in sex work compared to their white counterparts. Of those who participate in sex work, 39.9% identified as black and black multiracial, 33.2% as Hispanic or of um, Latinx and white only as actually 6.3%, which is very surprising. So these numbers paint a pretty clear picture that discrimination and systemic racism are forces at play leading to more trans women and especially trans women of color to participate in sex work. So sex workers are often also harassed by the police more with 79.1% uh, reporting high levels of interactions with the police that, and that goes up for trans feminine sex, work, sex workers to 83.9% and even higher for black and black multiracial sex workers to 87.2%. So that was a lot of, of uh, statistics there, but I have seen a lot of voices standing up and saying black trans lives matter with the Black Lives Matter movement. And this definitely shows why that is needed. So uh, Nicole, as a trans woman of color, do these stats surprise you at all? No, they're they're fairly accurate in the sense of, especially the one about um, kind of being harassed by the police or encounters, uh, multiple encounters, especially if you are living in a specific area that is known for prostitution, you could have never done it a day in your life. But if you're walking down the street, they're gonna assume you are. And a lot of the times that situation happens, I know many people who have been incarcerated off of falsely being accused of prostitution. And I've asked these individuals flat out, I'm not the cops, tell me where you're doing it. And they're like, no, if I was, I would be honest about it. But I wasn't this time, I was walking to Walmart, I was walking to the store, I just needed to go get something. And just because my skirt may have been short, my, uh, my, uh, my shirt may have been low, they assumed that I was a sex worker. So I think there's a lot to be said. And most people will say, well, don't walk down the street that way. 
well, are we policing the way people are dressing or are we trying to keep the community safe? That's where I think it gets a little difficult where depending on the cops selected for that area, depending on their experience, if you have a cop who has, no, who has had nothing but great experiences with sex workers, they're going to treat people differently than someone who had to arrest three or four and it, it was a difficult arrest and all of these things. They're going to be a little jaded. So I think it, there's a lot of factors that come into it um, that aren't talked about where it's like, where does that officer stand when it comes to equality or just looking at people for people? Uh, where does that officer stand when it comes to, I'm working in this specific neighborhood? Do they look at it as less than or just a neighborhood that they're patrolling? So I think a lot of factors go into it, but the, the stats don't uh, shock me, unfortunately, just because as we reach November and Trans Day of um, Remembrance, the number just keeps getting higher and higher of trans individuals that have been murdered. Can you go a little bit about what that Trans Day of Remembrance is? Yeah, Transgender Day of Remembrance is November 20th. It is the um, final kind of day of transgender, uh, trans awareness week, which is the week before. And um, the Day of Remembrance is created to really honor those individuals who really don't get the notoriety. Nowadays, we see, um, especially within the last three or four years, the big organizations making um, a statement when someone was murdered or things like that. But these killings have happened for years and nobody but the community was honoring them. Nobody was doing visuals. The media wouldn't pick it up. So this was kind of one of those things, as we see in a lot, where the community took it upon itself. And it's like, well, if you all aren't going to recognize this, then we are. And now it's spiraled into major colleges hold visuals. Um, the big organizations like HRC and all of those have a specific page on their website dedicated to that. So it really has come a long way, um, but it really just started out as a community effort to really acknowledge those that we lost throughout the year. Got it. Thank you so much for highlighting that. Um, and yeah, I think that all of these I think intersectionality is so, so important to, to bring up in this conversation, just the multi-layers of that are pretty much highlighted in all of these uh, statistics that we shared. So thank you so much, Nicole. Uh, Kevin, kind of shifting gears a little bit, we, we talked a little bit about sex trafficking, um, but people who engage in sex work and, and who want to engage in sex, sex work are often still seen as trafficking victims. Um, so can you share what sex trafficking is and the difference between sex trafficking and sex work, and what the red flags for sex trafficking are. Yeah, the the primary difference that I see is consent. Um, is this a choice or is this coercion? Um, sex work, again, is someone being their own boss, or maybe they work for a porn studio or for a specific club that they dance at or work out and their needs are being respected and met. They're not being forced or asked to do anything that's against their will. You know, like, oh, take this customer to the back room and show them a good time. Like that would then go to trafficking. So sometimes I think the line is very blurred, um, but the difference is consent. Is this person doing this because they want to, or are they being made to? And I think, at least from my observations, red flags can be, um, a lot of times, a lot of drug use. Um, if someone's working with a pimp that's not respecting their boundaries and their consent, and who is, and I can't even think of the best word. It's almost like they put these uh, these people being trafficked in a position where they owe the pimp or they owe these people something, and you have to work it off through sex acts. And so they think they're getting paid, but maybe they're collecting seventy five from from 
the client or the John, and they're only pocketing five or 10 of that. Um, and a lot of times they're being forced to use drugs to keep them sedated or to keep them in a state where they can't run away or ask for consent or, oh, you can't go to the police now because you're a prostitute and you're a junkie. You know, it's these barriers are being put up against them, um, which is why I'm I always think that the regulation of it, the legalization of it is safer because it takes that uh, component out of it. You know, if you have a place where this is regulated and it's not illegal to be your own boss as a sex worker, then you can make choices that align with what you want to do as a sex worker. Um, but a lot of times people are found, you know, especially, and there was a huge, and I, I couldn't remember the name for you, but there was this huge sting busted in Florida near Panama City, I think. It was somewhere in the panhandle. This, like, these rich this family of people would go to Mexico and go to these poor villages and be like, oh, you know, we'll buy your 14, 15-year-old from you, and we're going to give them a great life. They just have to work for us for, like, three years, and then they'll be off, and they'll be rich, and they're taking them to traffic them. You know, and, of course, in these foreign countries, they see America, bright, shining, golden opportunity. We don't have anything here, and and I think that's I think that's the overt... Sex trafficking, I think that's what a lot of people think of when they think trafficking, like the very crazy undercover sting operation things. But it, I mean, it happens in the form of someone who's a dancer at a nightclub being asked to go to the back room and do something nice for this customer because they paid a lot of money to be here. So it comes in a lot of forms. But at the end of the day, the differentiation is always consent. Is this person doing this because they're their own boss and they want to? Or is someone saying do this or else? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's always important to remember that sex trafficking happens in America. Um, I think a lot of times we, when we think of sex trafficking, we might think of it as a faraway place that it doesn't happen here. It definitely happens here. I didn't hear about that story, um, but that's really heartbreaking. Um, and also, yeah, I think a lot of the red flags that you brought up, it just makes me think of, you know, power and control, which is always what we come back to when we talk about sexual violence in general, them taking away the power from the sex workers, basically, and then it becoming that is a sign of sex trafficking, right? And so that regulation piece, it sounds like that could be a way to give power back and voices back to the sex workers. Um, so I think that that definitely would make sense as, as why it would be a safer option. That being said, you know, we, we talked a little bit about OnlyFans and kind of modern sex work. So, so with COVID-19, social media and digital interactions have picked up and there seems to be um, a new platform that sex workers are using a lot called OnlyFans. So far, we have talked a lot about sex work face-to-face, -face, but what is sex work online? It, I'll jump in for just because I'm like, it kind of leads from my answer, I guess, <laughs> from the previous question. Um, and I want to add, I think, an observation to it. Um, but online, well, OnlyFans, yeah, it's a platform where you can charge any price you want for whatever content you're producing. It could be something like music or behind the scenes features to a podcast or make, you know what I mean? Like we could charge an extra $2 and people could see the video of us, whatever. Like you could use OnlyFans for that. Um, primarily it's not primarily. Well, I think maybe primarily <laughs> it's being used a lot for 
um, porn style videos by people who are professional or amateur um, having consensual sex with someone, partner, friend, uh, fellow OnlyFans sex worker, uh, and putting their content out for people to subscribe to their exclusive content. Um, and that is very popular now, I think, because again, it's giving more control to that worker rather than going through a maybe porn studio. I'm not sure what those logistics are like, like how much they actually make from those kinds of places. I know even within porn studios, there can be sex trafficking um, and coercion from time to time. I think OnlyFans is like, I'm the boss. I'm choosing what to do and what to put out and for how much I'm allowing people to access that for. Um, and so that's become, yeah, I, I, yeah, we've seen like a surge of that during COVID. Um, what I want to say too is at least from my observation and kind of connecting with something Nicole said earlier just about visibility and judgment um, and to the overall picture of systemic oppression, at least from the content that I've been seeing it, not not me subscribing to OnlyFans, I don't get paid that much to watch a lot of whatever I want. Um, <laughs> but the advertising I'm seeing for it is mostly white men, um, because a lot of the people I follow and talk to are gay, it's mostly white gay men. And they're more glorified for this, um, whereas there was a popular gay male porn star who did a video this past year with a transgender male who didn't have bottom surgery. So as far as the word passing goes, passing in every way except anatomically, there was still a vagina rather than a penis. And gay men were up in arms boycotting the videos. They saw it as a betrayal. Like, it was nonsense. And so it's, again, looking at that systemic piece of it, OnlyFans and all this stuff is widely supported when it is a hot white guy. Uh, and then when it comes to everything else, it's tokenized or fetishized, you know. Um, and I think that sex work, again, should be seen positively through a sex-positive lens and people empowering themselves to do sex work if they want. But I always still just see from the systemic lens, there's still a glorification of a hot white guy over everybody else. And when it's a hot white guy doing an OnlyFans, people are dying to subscribe. When it's a female or a female of color, it's like, she's why is she doing that? That's she's What does her family think? She's demoralizing herself. How horrible. We just saw it with the WAP music video and song, right? Like, they're singing about sexual empowerment for females, and how dare they? That's dirty. That's gross. They shouldn't talk about that. So it's all connected. I just... Maybe that's my soapbox is pointing that out where I can. <laughs> pointing out my fellow people. <laughs> oh, I really appreciate it. Um, I also, yeah, I think that that's a really good point that there is this idea. First off, I wanted to ask this question. Um, do you think people, and Nicole, you can jump in at any time, of course. Do you think people look at OnlyFans as sex work? I mean, what do you all think about that? Oh, no. <clears throat> no, no, no. It's not until it, it's something that you disagree with. So, no, right now it's liberation. It's, it's uh, what's the difference of posting on IG in my lingerie versus somebody paying for it? No, no, no. There's a whole interesting mentality shift when it comes to OnlyFans. But webcamming, which has been happening since 2001 or whatever, when the Internet hit, it, this is the way to happen. And people have always been looked at less than. 
but now because your favorite celebrity has an OnlyFans or now because it's just interesting when things are widely accepted, how it's viewed versus when it's taboo, but been happening for years. Um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting. It is. And, and I think that what Kevin, you, what you were saying about how, depending on who is, you know, the, if, if a man is doing it, it seems like that is going to shift the way people look at it even further and going back to, you know, they always say like, Oh, that's someone's daughter when they think of, you know, someone at a strip club or something like that, but they don't think of the men who go to the strip club. I don't know. Just kind of like that, that kind of mentality too. It, it definitely is from a systemic um, lens. That is a really interesting way to thing to bring up. Yeah. Males, gay or straight get a pass for for porn for going to strip clubs for sexual content every day of the week more than women and then you know forget adding trans on top of that you know what i mean the more layers you're adding the more people are fearful and scared and disapproving absolutely and and we talked a little bit about consent and and boundaries which are always really important so i wanted to talk about that more you know, with any kind of sex work, of course, consent is important between the client and the worker. So how do these change, though, from face-to-face versus digital, if at all? I think, I mean, I think consent is consent. So, I mean, it may change in the sense of you may have to type it versus telling somebody. But I think it, and I mean, obviously, in person, there can be a lot more things that can go wrong. The individual is in front of you, literally. However, they can say triggering things, they can say horrific things, you know, there's still ways that um, someone can traumatize you. So I think consent is consent, but it does shift a bit where you're either having to tell somebody in person or kind of just writing on there what to do and what not to do. Yeah, I think I guess as far as someone who's a sex worker producing content, like respecting um, their boundaries, if they're saying nine, nine a month to subscribe to what I'm producing, there's a lot of people who will seek to bootleg it and try to uh, record and recapture their images, their you know explicit pictures, videos, and make them publicly available without consent. I mean, we've seen it when people get their phone hacked and they're being blackmailed. Oh, I'll send this you know nude photo you have to so and so, or you know it's happened to celebrities how many times now? So I think consent digitally is like that's a violation. I think. I don't know if, I mean, yeah, it is illegal, but I think it should be more specified the kind of exploitative blackmail that that is, Uh, you know, bootlegging. Mm -hmm. If someone's a sex worker making videos, respect the price that they're asking. Don't bootleg it and uh, devalue them. Yeah, I definitely wanted to bring that aspect up to it. I think that it's important to mention that just because they take that picture, they take that video doesn't mean that they want everyone to see it. Um, they also should have the right to their content. Um, and that should definitely be respected, just like you were mentioning. So absolutely. Um, so with that being said, I wanted to uh, just give you all an opportunity to speak about anything that we didn't cover before we sign off. So um, I also wanted to give you some space to speak to any sex workers out there who may be listening. So so you, Kevin, or you, Nicole, is there anything else you wanted to bring up before we sign off here? Yeah, I would just say if, if you find yourself in the sex work industry, just understand that you are human, you are valid. Don't let people tell you you're not. Don't let people tell you that 
their opinion on it. Try to be as safe as you can. Um, but understand that your experience is still valid. If something happens to you, you have a right to speak up and say something. Um, I've had situations happen that I still to this day blame myself and I never told the cops because I thought I put myself in that situation. So don't feel that way. Um, if I could go back and change something, it would be I would have addressed that situation properly back then. But, you know, um, you look at things differently in retrospect. But I just think, you know, be strong, be confident in yourself, stay safe um, and understand that your experience is valid. Yeah, I think just echoing that as far as like you are valid, the things that happen to you are valid, your experiences are valid. Um, you know, know your know your boundaries, know your consent and don't. Don't be ashamed for what you have to do to survive. No one should be ashamed for surviving um, because the world's not granting them an opportunity that they deserve. So, you know, there is help. There are people who care, who validate you, who are here to help you in any way that you need that help. Um, but yeah, there is, there is help and you are valid and you deserve to be respected regardless of your position or situation. Yeah, absolutely. And and always to remind everyone that's listening that if you ever find yourself feeling like your boundaries weren't respected um, and that your consent wasn't respected at all, um, the VSE is here 24-7 to, to help you with that and to connect you with resources and also to support you directly. Um, but I think that that's a wonderful place to sign off. So I wanted to thank you, the listener, for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you are not alone. And thank you so, so much, Nicole and Kevin, for joining me today. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you.